All right. So in our uh, in our Bible study, we've been studying through uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, have really enjoyed our. Uh, for me, I've really enjoyed our time there. Um, it uh, has definitely been an encouragement. Uh, a lot of really rich, <clears throat> rich truths, especially about Christ in the uh, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the passage that I plan to be uh, looking at uh, is Hebrews four, verses fourteen through sixteen. Starting in verse 14, seeing then that we have a, a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For now we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So this uh, this section has really been <clears throat> um, when Brother Lewis touched on it a couple of weeks ago. Um, I considered changing changing course, but um, it kept on coming back into my mind. So uh, it's really been a, a sweet thing to meditate on. But just thinking of Christ as our High Priest, um, you know, uh, this letter is being written to Jews that are considering leaving the faith, and they would have been very familiar with. Uh, with the role of a high priest. Um, and so often it, the high priest could be, um, you know, you can imagine kind of disconnected. Um, they spend all day kind of around the, around the temple and it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be a very personal, personal relationship. Um, you know, and a lot of the priests you read of Eli and his sons, they had kind of a, a greater, uh, Kind of a, a superiority over the over the people. Um, well, Christ is not is not that way. Um, and the biggest thing that stuck out to me here is is just thinking um, he cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Well, you know what are our infirmities? Well, sin. Um, and we've got plenty of passages where Christ was tempted just as a man, uh, or tempted just as any of us are yet without sin. Um, so uh, a lot of times we can trace our uh, our sins, especially back to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Uh, those are usually you know, the three categories that they kind of fit into. It's um, what I desire, what I see and I, I desire, what I lack, and how I look. You know, how do I appear to others? Um, so if you will, turn with me um, to Luke 4. <clears throat> Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in the first verse. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. In those days he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone to be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of, but by every word of God. The devil taking him into a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power I will give, I will give thee, 
and the glory of them for that for that is delivered unto me and whomever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt not thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him shalt him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. <clears throat> for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And their hand and their hand and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. So the reason I went to that verse is, uh, or this series of verses, is just looking at the way that Satan tempted Christ. It was um, what he desired. He was, you know, you read in the first couple verses um, that, let's see if I can find where it was, that he afterward hungered. So that um, he was starving and he showed him a loaf of bread. Well, no one would argue in that moment that it was what, you know, what the body desired, desired that bread. Uh, and how often do we have the same thing? We, you know, we think I've got to have that. I could, I've got to have that girl, that car, that job, that anything. <clears throat> um, then he took him up on the, uh, on the uh, on the rock and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world, and said, "You know, if you'll worship me, you can have these. You can have these kingdoms." Well, that's more than a desire. That's a you know kind of a lack. It's the same you know similar principle, but of you know that will complete me if I just had that. Um, and how many times have we said that and we get that thing and it's still not enough and we've got to have the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, <clears throat> And then the uh, the pride of life, he takes him up in the middle of Jerusalem, that's the capital city, and says, if you jump, the angels will catch you. Well, no doubt that would have made a statement. That would have been seen by everyone in the city. Um, and he could have very well done that and been, been right to do that. Um, but it would have been for pride's sake on, you know, so everyone would see um, and that he would be manifest. So um, all of these things... So you see, we're not we're not so different. We weren't we're not tempted in a different way. Um, and I looked up the uh, the word you know in the going back to our text, um, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched, that cannot sympathize, that doesn't feel for. Um, so every um, every temptation that we go through. Uh, he understands because he also went through them. Uh, we also think, you know, think, well, what what other infirmities do we have? Um, well, we have hardships. You know, we have, uh, you know, people. the uh, The world we were plainly told they'll they hated me, so they'll hate you also. Um, you know, there's. I know. I just got uh, got out of a job where, you know, the guy, the my boss there was not a very kind person to me. Um, but I, this verse really stuck out to me, thinking this one minor, um, this one minor um, altercation with this guy, Christ was reviled over and over and over again by 
everyone, you know, all of the Jews. Um, you know, he was reviled worse than I could ever, ever dream to be. Um, and that just, you know, uh, if you're dealing with the loss of a, uh, the loss of a loved one or the loss of life, well, when Lazarus passed away, we read in, um, in John 11:35, Jesus wept. He was, he was saddened by the death of Lazarus. Now, he raised him back to life, but he was still saddened at the passing of life. So we see that no matter what infirmity, infirmary, infirmities, <clears throat> that word's not want to come out, what infirmities we have, Christ experienced those and was still faultless and without sin. And I likened it, you know, or I thought about it and it kind of helped me grab hold of it. When we're going through something, you know, um, if I'm having an issue with Margaret, it wouldn't make sense for me to talk to someone, you know, talk to Ace and get him to give me marriage advice. Well, that would be foolishness. He doesn't understand. Um, you know, the same as, um, you know, can't think of a better example, but, you know, asking an engineer to, to sell a car. Well, he could probably do it, but would he be as effective as a salesman? No, he probably wouldn't. It's not his field of expertise. He doesn't understand. Um, so the same with when we're talking to somebody about about issues and about things, we always seek out those that have common life experiences that understood or that have been through it before. Um, you know, you wouldn't talk to a couple that doesn't have kids um, about parenting advice. They don't understand. I know I was that guy. I thought, oh, you can just get them to be quiet all day in church. And my kids back there screaming right now. Um, it. They don't understand. They haven't been through those those life experiences. Um, well, it's the same with Christ. He understands. We can go to Him and talk to Him about all the things that we're struggling with. And He he not only, you know, it's not a book knowledge. He didn't, you know, oh, I heard that you humans struggle with this. He knows. He knows. Um, and so we can, uh, you know, what do we do with this, you know, with this knowledge? Well, we come boldly. To the throne of grace, uh, we read that in the last verse. Um, we don't have to sit around and clean ourselves up, wait twenty four hours uh, till the mud gets washed off a little bit, and then go to him. Or, you know, well, that sounds petty. No, go to him now. Go to him now um, because he understands and he cares. And that's just, um, you know, that is a a great blessing. Um, just thinking that no matter what we're dealing with, it is something that Christ will hear, He will take to the Father, um, and that He cares. So my, uh, <clears throat> my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would um, take advantage of the throne of grace, that we would be more bold, uh, be, uh, be emboldened to come boldly to the throne of grace like we're commanded to do. Um, and he's promised that we'll find grace and mercy there. Um, why wouldn't we come? Why, why wouldn't we run to where we can obtain grace and mercy? Um, I don't know about you guys. We've tried every other avenue out there and it's never enough. So come boldly to the throne of grace where we can obtain true grace and true mercy. <clears throat> so like... Um... Like Caleb was saying, we've been going through the book of uh, Hebrews uh, in our in our Bible study. Um, 
I'm going to be um, talking through chapter 10 uh, tonight. I've got a few a uh, few points I want to make from there. Um, it's been really enriching to go through Hebrews. Uh, the way the, the gospel story is, is um, explained and expounded upon in the book is very um, it's very unique, and it's just been a blessing to go through it with, with all the guys that go to the study. Um, and I feel like a lot of um, edification has come out of the discussion. Um, so in chapter 10... Um, it it brings um, a comparison between the old laws um, and the sacrifices that were made for the sins of of God's people, and a comparison to um, the sacrifice that Christ that Christ uh, made on the cross. Um, there's three main points I want to try to get out of this um, chapter. Um, one being uh, the great need for the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, two being the sacrifice itself. And then three, um, the perfect completion of the sacrifice. Um, so I think the great need for the sacrifice of Jesus is something that we would all agree is um, necessary um, for our salvation. Um, so, so firstly, in, in verse 1 of chapter 10, uh, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Um, the the law that was laid out for God's people has always been a foreshadowing of, of something greater. Um, it, it's always pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. Um, we see that sacrifices become inadequate um, when compared to the sacrifice that Christ made. Um, they they uh they they show an, an a lacking of um of uh, uh fulfillment of of the sacrifice that's needed to cover all of our sins uh, which are new every day which are continuous um, and when compared to uh, the sacrifice of Christ uh, we see that that they become inadequate uh, we see in verse two that if these sacrifices were sufficient then why could they not cease to be offered? For then would they not cease to be offered? Um, they had to be continually offered because they were not all encompassing to cover our sins, our sins that were new every day. So we see that we have a great need um, for the sacrifice of Christ. Um, the next point I want to make uh, from chapter 10 uh, is the, the sacrifice itself, the sacrifice of Christ. Um, in verse 6 of chapter 10, uh, it reads, um, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Um, we see this again in verse 8. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. But it also says in verse 8 that these sacrifices were made by the law. Um, so at the time, these laws, um, these sacrifices um, were a good thing. Uh, they were what God's people were commanded to do in order to make themselves clean and acceptable before the Lord. Um, but they could not cleanse the conscience. Um, if you would, I'm going to turn to chapter 9 of Hebrews. Um, 
From here, I'd like to read verse 9 through 14. Which was the figure for the time when present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him but did, that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings of carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come and high priest, good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, and entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkled the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see the the sacrifice of Christ itself, um, when compared to the sacrifices of the old law, um, was a, it was a, the old law being a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice, we see how complete and perfect it is in replacing the old law uh, and the old sacrifice. Um, we see the shortcomings of these sacrifices yet again. We see that for such great sin, the sacrifice of Jesus would have to be even greater to cover all iniquity. Um, and, and the old law was not sufficient to cover all iniquity. They had to be um, continuous year after year. Um, in chapter 10, verse, verse 11, I'm going back to chapter 10 now. Um, verse 11, it reads, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering sometimes the same sacrifices for which can never take away sins. Um, for years and years, these sacrifices were offered over and over uh, to God for the covering of their sins. Um, now contrast this with what is described in chapter 10. Uh, Rise chapter 10 goes on. Um, because the sacrifice of Christ was singular, was final, and was sufficient to do away with all other sacrifices once and for all. Um, in verse 14 of chapter 10, uh, it reads, For by one offering he hath perfected, forever them them that are sanctified. We see here the nature of the sacrifice that replaced the old law. Um, and then finally from, from chapter 10, uh, I'd just like to make the point, uh, uh, the completion and the perfection of the sacrifice. Um, I would just like to uh, read verses 16 uh, through 25 of chapter 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now a remission of these of these is, there is more offering of sin. There is no more offering of sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the, hol- the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath s- which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, 
as the, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Um, to me, Hebrews is the ultimate um, too bi- too good to be true book. Um, God sent His only Son to give His people um, something even better than they had before. Um, because God was still taking care of His people um, even before Christ by providing them with laws to govern themselves by. Um, but they were still able you know, to make sacrifices for their sins. Um, but as it reads in verse 16 of chapter 10, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. We no longer need uh, an earthly priest uh, to make intercessions on our behalf. Um, we can approach boldly the throne of grace um, because of the perfect and complete sacrifice of Jesus. Um, we're so blessed with the provisions um, God has given us to have his word that we can dedicate to our memory and we can meditate on it. Um, so let us hold fast the profession of our faith, knowing what a better sacrifice we have been sanctified with. Uh, and then in closing, I would just like to read um, verses 38 and 39 of chapter 10. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I appreciate y'all letting us speak. Um, it's always... Uh, a challenge, but we always get a lot out of it, having to study and um, come up with things to, to bring before you guys. And uh, we would just appreciate y'all's uh, continued prayers. And um, I think Elijah's coming up next. Thankful to be here. Um, you don't have to turn far. I'll be in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse... Uh, just for context's sake, I'm going to start reading in verse 18, but that's not exactly uh, all the section that I'm going to be touching on. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. 
it's kind of already been done, given a little bit of background on the book, but it's obviously written to a, a Jewish audience, uh, a Jewish audience undergoing some, some fairly severe persecution, uh, which is why throughout this book you see constant exhortations to, to hold fast, uh, not to turn away, um, to really to consider Christ as the, uh, the better covenant. So the old covenant, as it's been discoursed throughout all of the book, you have the sacrifices, the ordinances, the, the high priest, uh, the tabernacle, Jerusalem, the heavenly city, and all of those things are constantly, one by one, meticulously compared to uh, Christ's work as the high priest, heaven being the, the new tabernacle, the true tabernacle, uh, the sacrifice, the animal sacrifices, the new sacrifices, Reed put it, um, and explained from chapter 10, the new sacrifice is Christ, and it's a, a sufficient sacrifice. So we come to the end of the book, and obviously the exhortation is, you're not come unto that old covenant where they received the law at Mount Sinai, where there was thunder and lightning and, and the voice. You know, if you read that story, I would encourage you to on your own time. I don't have the exact chapter reference uh, with me at the moment, but God gave them the law on Mount Sinai, and the Israelites were so terrified of God speaking to them when they heard this law that he gave them that they said, you can't talk to us anymore. We can't hear this anymore, except we're, we're going to die if you keep on speaking in this way, if we keep on beholding this glory or this, this fear that's coming from Mount Sinai. So they sent Moses up to get the law, and of course it was written on the Ten Commandments and all that is course, written in the rest of this book. You're familiar with that. So we come to verse 25, and that's where I'm going to be taking my, my main points from. That's where I want to go to. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. You're familiar with the, the parable that Christ gave, the parable of the vine dressers where he sent his servants. One after one, he sent his servants, and one was beaten, another one was killed, and then finally he sent his son uh, to the vineyard, and they, they killed his son. Um, and he asked, of course, what, what do you think that that uh, vineyard owner should do to those wicked husbandmen? And the Pharisees answered and said, you know, well, they should be miserably destroyed. Well, before I get to the part about the sun, um, all throughout the Old Testament we read of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these prophets that were constantly rejected. Their message was, was constantly being uh, trodden underfoot, so to speak. Um, Jeremiah and Isaiah, and Hosea is the book that we're, that we're currently going through. Um, you see them constantly exhort Israel to repentance, constantly exhorting Israel to turn. And that's the word of the Lord being spoken through them. So that's the one who's speaking here is God through his earthly servants. And you know what happened to them? Well, we all know what happened to them. Israel was wiped off of the map completely. Judah was destroyed, brought into captivity. We, we learned about that in Daniel from uh, Brother Lewis preaching through that. And they were brought into captivity for, uh, can't remember the exact amount of years, but it was a long time, and they come back, and they were never restored to their former glory. And why did, why did that happen? Well, because they did not heed 
the word of the Lord that came through Moses and through the prophets. So now we see much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And that's Christ. Christ came down, of course, Christ, the eternal son of God, um, came down, lowered himself to be made into the form of a man so that he could suffer and, and die. And he brought the message of God to the Jews then. And, and obviously it's an eternal message. It's a message to us as well, which is, um, to put it simply, of course, there's a lot more that goes into it, but simply to repent and to believe on him. And there are two classes of people in the world. There are those that are constantly in their mind and in their heart refusing Christ. And there are those that are fighting to, fighting against the world and constantly uh, looking to Christ, constantly embracing Christ, constantly learning more of Him and, and, and bearing His yoke, taking up their cross daily. And there are two classes of people, and the, the term here is refuse not. That simply means um, not to pass by. Uh, to refuse is to someone offers you something and you turn it away. Now, I'm not uh, talking about a, a free gospel offer. Don't misunderstand me. But the command is to all of the world to repent. The promise is that whoever repents and comes to Christ will be saved. It's a declaration of truth. This is a, a truth of the, of the utmost importance that if you turn from this world, if you neglect everything in your life here, and you turn to Christ and you devote your life to Him, then you will have eternal life. But the consequences of refusing that message... It says, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And that just constantly went through my mind as I was going through this passage. And when you begin to think about it, you, you see that's just. Of course that makes sense. God sent the prophets. They were men, earthly men, with sinful natures that brought his message. And now he sends his son his only begotten son that he enjoyed fellowship with since the beginning of the world to save his people. And there are everlasting mercies and everlasting, there's everlasting joy reserved for his people in heaven. But for those that reject him, for those that refuse him, imagine the insult, the absolute audacity of one to read or to listen to hear of Christ. To hear of the Son of God coming down, and I've said this over and over, but He died. He, he died the most excruciating death known to man, and the Son of God, the most perfect being that could ever exist, the spotless Lamb as He's called, is mocked and beaten and spit on by a bunch of dirty, defiled sinners. And it's all of us have a part in that. 
All of us have a part in putting him on that cross. He came to take away the sin of the world, as it says. And he bore the sins of his people on that cross. But for those who reject him, it's highly insulting to God and it's highly insulting to Christ, much more so for those that hear it and actively refuse it constantly in their minds. Um, to add on to this, let me read a little bit further. In verse 26 and 27, uh, he says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. It kind of helped me to put this into a picture. You have a building that's being uh, built, right? And you have the scaffolding and perhaps you have a, a veil that's covering it, right? That's the structure. That's the plan. That's the, the um, well, that's what they're focusing on. The scaffolding is all uh, leading up to it. It's not a perfect analogy, but I hope you get what I'm saying. It says um, that scaffolding is the law, so to speak. It's the type, the image. It, it's the shadow of things to come. And whenever he says here, yet once more he shakes the earth and heaven, that's whenever Christ came. It shook away the law, it shook away the sacrifices, it shook away the high priest and, and all the ordinance contained therein. And all that's left is the covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the final revelation that we have uh, reason to believe that we'll have from God. And it says here, yet once more, it's one last time that God has come and brought a revelation to his people. One last messenger. There's a quote I'd like to read, um, which is from John Brown, but beware of inattention, unbelief, and disobedience in reference to the revelation of Christ. Consider that this is a divine revelation, a, di a divine revelation of the most important of all subjects, a divine revelation of the completest form, a divine revelation by the most exalted of messengers. And consider all this that ye neglect and despise it not. And he says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. And I'll get to the next part later, but not only is it the final revelation, it's a revelation that is firm and solid and is not going anywhere. Um, it's a revelation of the absolute objective truth. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, at the very end of the chapter in verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I missed the verse I was going for. Verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after, but after this, the judgment. Reed talked about it. There's a need of salvation. The need is that we are all dead in trespasses and sins, except we're made alive in Christ, except, um, except we believe on Him. What else is there to believe on? Uh, what else is there for us to put our hope in? What I mean by that is for after, after this life, there is nothing after Christ and there's nothing outside of Him 
besides hell and destruction. Which is what he goes on to say. He says, um, before I go there. That's something to consider. That God sent His Son and it's the final revelation. That is something to think on and ponder on and to ask ourselves the question what we're doing with that information. That Should that not influence our lives? Should that not influence every single thought that we have? Uh, to take those thoughts captive to Christ? If we are allowing desires in our heart or uh, thoughts in our mind or if we're speaking things or speak our, our, our language You can't read this and think, well, this is just disassociated from my personal life. Uh, At least you can't read it honestly and think that. We have to take this seriously. It says in Hebrews 10, uh, 26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And that's what he's exhorting every single one of us to tonight. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. Because he's not going to speak again except to say, well done thou good and faithful servant, or depart from me, ye worker of iniquity, I never knew you. And be cast into everlasting darkness. And keeping that in mind, he says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. To go back to the parables, there's the parable of the priceless pearl. The pearl of great price. That uh, when it's found, uh, the man who finds it goes and sells all that he has for this one pearl. The pearl of great price. And of course, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that pearl to be Christ. And when it says, let us have grace, I take it to mean it just simply means let us have a a gracious heart. You you remember in, uh, it's either Colossians and Ephesians where it says, singing and making melody with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It's it's gracious thankfulness. Um, It's a thankful heart for what God has done for us. And that's what this does whenever we consider it. Whenever we consider the consequences outside of Christ and throughout all this book, we see that contrasted with the absolute, words can't describe it, but the benefits that are in Christ. Caleb mentioned it. He's he's our personal, faithful high priest that is touched individually with each of our infirmities. That's not make-believe. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a novel. This isn't a, a Harry Potter novel. This is the Word of God that He preserved throughout all generations so that we would know it, that we would learn of it, and that we would believe what He says. He says earlier in chapter 4 that uh, He references the Israelites. They didn't escape whenever they did not believe God's promise. God promised to give them the promised land. Hence the name, the promised land. But they would not go up to take it. They were terrified of the giants. Because of their unbelief, they did not inherit the land, and all of them died in the wilderness. 
So, this gracious heart does not come out of a heart of unbelief. It comes from believing what God says. It comes from believing it on a day-to-day basis and making it our our number one priority to serve and to subject every, every facet of our life to His will. And he also says that we may serve God acceptably with, a reverent, with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. And that kind of goes without saying. You see so much of this today to where Jesus is some hippie that's dressed up to, to make you feel better. He's a self-help uh, counselor, so to speak. And I don't want to rail on that. I don't want to deny that Christ is the ultimate self-help, so to speak. But He is a Lord and He's a King. He is a, a Master. We are slaves to Christ. To do all that He commands if we subject ourselves to Him. If we're not doing that, it simply means that He's not our Master and sin is our Master. So considering all this, considering the importance of it, of it all, how should we walk from day to day with this in mind? Was well, a reverence for God. It's taking Him seriously. Whenever we wake up and we read our Bibles every day, which we should do if we're taking God seriously, then we read His commands to us. We take those seriously. We see where we're in error of those and we... We mourn, we repent, we turn from those sins. We pray to God for forgiveness. We fear, not damnation, but we fear God. And I've, you know, I've heard that uh, described as it's just a reverence. It's a, a, a divine awe. And I, I think that's correct. But I think there's a sense in which we do truly fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. It says in, uh, I keep referencing the Gospels, but Christ says, don't fear man. They don't have any power. They have power to destroy this temporary body. But fear him who has power to cast your body and soul into hell. And that's more than just a uh, that's more than just a, a reverence. That's a, a literal fear. It's not a fear as in you know uh, a servile fear, but the same fear that we have for a father that we would not disobey him uh, because we know that the rod is coming shortly after. For our God is a consuming fire. Why would we neglect so great a salvation? God is more than more than a hobby. That goes without saying, and that sounds pretty obvious, but that's how we can treat it sometimes. He is either everything to us or Nothing. 
Christ is not worth second-rate obedience. He's worth absolute subjection and absolute obedience. And the warning is a true warning when he says, much more shall not we escape. It says, it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. We're all going to die. We're all mortal. And the difference between eternity in joy and eternity in torment that we cannot imagine is one person. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the only way to escape the wrath that is to come. For those that are in Christ, that's something to keep in mind so that we have grace in our hearts to serve God, to be thankful for it, to thank God every single day that He opened our eyes and He brought us out of this world, out of our sins, out of this death and bondage that we were in. And seeing that, seeing what He has pulled us out of, seeing what He has prepared for us, don't turn away from that, but serve Him daily with reverence and godly fear. And consider Jesus Christ. Thank you for your time. That's...